turn in our Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter 2. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 24 to 25, um, is really the main focus of the sermon. But we're going to be looking at uh, a number of verses from chapter 2 with a bird's eye view. Very different than when we preached through First uh, Peter earlier. So this is a little different. It's from a different angle, yet still contextual. We've got to keep things in their context. So First Peter, chapter 2. And I'm going to read for context. beginning in verse 13. So let's get comfortable. Let's take this next half hour or so and uh, try our best to focus on the word of the Lord, which um, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So hear God's word to you this very morning. First Peter 2, beginning in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now here's our text. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and to our lives this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, no one, and I mean no one, knows how impossible it is to get rid of the stain of sin better than the person who have tr who's tried so hard to remove it in their own human power and their own effort. Many of our uh, most beloved hymns, I like that word beloved, but we do, we love these hymns, um, express not only accurate biblical teaching, which they must do that, but they also express our own experience, if we know the Savior, 
uh, when they say these things, things like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Can I get an amen? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We know it. Or take this hymn. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What an illustration as we look out our windows, look through our front, at our front, out of our front doors. We see the snow blanketing everything. We read it in the prophet Isaiah earlier. And by the way, that's what Peter is actually expounding um, in chapter two of his epistle, particularly verses 24 and 25. Isaiah 53 is expounding. Uh, the Lord hath laid on him, that is on the Lord Jesus, the iniquity, that is the sin of us all. He paid the debt that we owed so that we could be reconciled with God. So listen, so that justice can be satisfied. So we could receive, it's very important to understand this in our heads and in our hearts, that we could receive Christ's righteousness applied to our account. And that we might be able to be declared righteous in his sight because we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Now that's how we all began the Christian life. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man come to the Father but by me, Jesus said. It's the only way to begin it. By believing the gospel, believing Jesus, believing what he did for us. Now, Obviously, if you haven't done that yet, then that's step number one. And the rest of this whole sermon, uh, you might want to um, listen to it or, you know, save it for later. But if you haven't done that yet, what are you waiting for? That is uh, really what's the most important thing to you in, in all of your life and in all the world right now is that you would get right with God through faith in Christ. Embrace his finished work on the cross. For those of us who have done that, and I see there's about nine of us watching, I would think uh, that we have done that. The gospel's not only, I got a great message for you this morning uh, that started a few months back, but we're going to continue it this morning. The gospel's not only the way to begin the Christian life, uh, to receive justification, but it's also the way to make progress in the Christian life, the way to continue, which is... Uh, the power of God, the gospel is the power of God, not only unto justification, but the gospel is the power of God unto sanctification. So when Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, that word salvation is made up of three things, justification, sanctification, and glorification in the future. So we're going to see this morning that it's the same gospel that, that justified us. That's the gospel that sanctifies us. I want you to see that. Now, last time I preached this, I gave the example of how the gospel is the engine that drives us, that gives us the power and the ability to forgive others the way that we've been forgiven by God in Christ. So relationally, it works this way. Just as the gospel gave us forgiveness this way, it enables us to forgive one another and be reconciled to one another. We talked about that last time. So this time, 
we're actually going to take a look, as I mentioned, at chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we're going to see this message from him. The gospel is the engine that empowers us to live for righteousness. Because if we're believers, we, we're never going to stop um, asking that question in the sense of every morning, hey, how can I live today for righteousness? Uh, what's the way that I'm going to be enabled to do it? So we get commands from God. We see what God wants us to do constantly, if we're in the Word at all, especially. Um, but the question is, how do we actually uh, carry out those commands? How do we put those things in practice? How do we live uh, uh, righteously? Um, not just in our position, we know we're already righteous and standing, but how do we do that in a practical, everyday way? That's the question. So we're going to look at Peter, the Apostle Peter's application of Isaiah 53, 5-6, and we're going to see he doesn't only apply it to our justification, but he applies it to our sanctification. And so this is what we're going to see. As Peter points out, Jesus is the one spoken of by the prophet in Isaiah 53. So we're going to take a look at basically two things, but we're going to have like a little sandwich. So the first point and the third point are going to be the same, kind of like two pieces of bread, and then we'll have the point in the middle. So the first point is the God, it's in the gospel that we find the power to live for righteousness. That's point one and three. But the second thing we're going to see this morning is what living for righteousness looks like. What does it look like? How do we know when someone's living for righteousness? What can we see? So that's what we're going to take a look at. So let's take a look at the first one. The gospel is why, where we find the power to live for righteousness. You might want to pay attention to this one. I know I need to pay attention to it. Let's read verses 24 and 25 again to refresh us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Where have we heard that before? For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's a direct uh, application of Isaiah 53, isn't it? So, first of all, it reminds us of what we already know if we're believers. And that is, uh, Jesus took our sins upon himself. Right? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. But then he takes this passage and he does something a, a little bit different here. He applies it to our ongoing walk with God, our life of faith, our growth in grace. And I'm going to quote, this is a rare time for Pastor Santo. This might wake you up if you've been sleeping. I'm going to quote from the King James Version because it's actually more accurate to the Greek. And in this case, it really matters. Sometimes it's like, eh, it wasn't that big of a difference. This time it matters. The ESV, the NIV, and even the NASB gets it wrong here. So I'm going to quote from the King James Version. This is what Peter actually writes in the Greek. And you'll see why it's important. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. In other words, we have died to sins. That's important to see that. We have died to sins, and so now because we died to sins with Jesus when he died, we can live for righteousness. Now that is super powerful. That's incredibly powerful for us believers. It means that, that Isaiah 53 does not only apply to justification, but it applies to our sanctification. That is, our being made more and more in the likeness of Jesus. 
um, because of Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. The Apostle Paul does this, uh, we shouldn't be surprised, in Romans 6, right? We learn Jesus died for, for our sins on the cross, but we also learn there that he died to, we died to sins on the cross with Jesus. So he died for us, but we died with him. Now, I will never forget this day. My dad didn't mean it this way, but it just jumped out on me when I was preparing for this passage. When my mom passed away, my dad walked down the stairs and said, two people died in that room today. And he meant something different, obviously. But what Peter is saying, and what his fellow apostle Paul is saying, when Jesus died on the cross, millions upon millions upon millions died with him on that day. But what that means is that we, our old self, was crucified with him. The old person who was defined and dominated by sin in principle, that old man, that old person, died on the cross with Jesus. I always love that that other, I was in a very big hymn mood this week, uh, but the hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing uh, My Redeemer's Praise. Um, someday when we get a piano player, we're going to sing it, but it's not good for guitar for me anyway. But here are the words that I love, my favorite line in the whole hymn. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Such a beautiful line. There's so much in it, but I want to focus on one thing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. So Isaiah 53, according to 1 Peter, the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus for three years, does not only apply to the fact that Jesus cancels our sin on the cross through faith in what he did, but the fact that he breaks the power of the sin that he canceled on our behalf. So that means, it doesn't mean we don't still have a sinful nature, but it means the domineering power, the dominance, the rule of sin has been broken. Now why would we continue to fight remaining sin? Why would we continue to live for righteousness in a world where living for righteousness is seen as bizarre, odd, and unbalanced? In a world where we get punished for living for righteousness? Well, Peter tells us why the motivation, the power. This is important. Listen. He says this, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See how he applies Isaiah 53? We all like sheep have gone astray, but now... By the grace of God, we've returned. We've returned to the pastor. That's what shepherd means, the pastor of our souls, the overseer, the bishop, the one who cares for us. You believe the gospel, you return home. So it's in the gospel that we find the forgiveness of sins, but it's also in the gospel, listen, that we find healing from our sins. He takes this verse, and although in one sense it does apply physically, in Matthew's gospel we see that, Peter applies it spiritually. We are healed spiritually. That means we no longer go our own way as a way of life to find peace, 
to find life, to find satisfaction, to find meaning, to find wholeness. His wounds have healed us from that mess. We don't have to be first all the time. We don't have to insist on our rights. Listen, we don't have to keep fighting the man. We don't have to look good or get all the credit. We return to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls and we found peace that surpasses understanding. He bore our sins so that having, having died to sins, past tense, we might live for righteousness. See, that's what we've been freed to do. We read the whole context. Remember what he says. Do not uh, use your freedom as a cover-up for sin, but live as servants of God. Freed to serve with joy and to find God's pleasure in it. Edmund Clowney puts it this way. Not only do they plead the sinner's case in judgment, meaning Jesus' wounds, they transform his present suffering. No longer is it the bitter legacy of unrighteousness. It has become fellowship in the steps of Jesus. The pain that remains for the Christian is not the penalty of sin. Christ has suffered that in his place. The pain that remains in Christ's calling to follow in his steps I'm sorry, the pain that remains is Christ's calling to follow in his steps, sharing his reproach. That's the pain that remains. To suffer with Christ, the one who we've now been brought home to God by. So that, that's where we get the power to live for righteousness. The second thing I want to point out here is what living for righteousness looks like. And if you open up your Bibles, and we're going to take a look at chapter 2 real quick, and I'm just going to give you a bird's eye look. You could look it up later as well, underline it with a pencil. But notice what, what living for righteousness looks like in the apostle for, for the Apostle Peter. Look in verse 11. It means to abstain from sinful desires. The opposite of what the world does. The world says, if it feels good, do it. Go with it how God made you. Peter says, living for righteousness means abstaining from sinful desires. Uh, verse 12, living such good lives among the pagans. That's what living righteously looks like. Verse 13, submitting to authorities. Not a real popular one right now. Verse 15, bearing up graciously under unjust suffering. I don't know if that's ever been popular, but that's what living for righteousness looks like. Verse 16, not using our freedom as a cover-up for sin or evil. Verse 16, live as servants of God. That's what it looks like. Verse 17, be respectful. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Verses 18 and 19, this is a big one. Even slaves under unjust masters submit for God's glory because you're conscious of God to bring him honor. 
Now, why would you do such a thing? Again, because of the truth of the gospel, what Jesus did in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Now, read what he said here earlier in chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter goes on, he himself bore our sins, etc. What Peter is saying is, by God's grace, you begun the Christian life by faith in the good news. Continue the way you began by faith, which means trusting in his work on the tree, specifically in this case, to get ultimate justice. Whoa, takes a turn, doesn't it? Because notice what Jesus did. He did not argue back. He remained silent, but he did something positive. He entrusted himself to his faithful creator. That's what the text, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Let me get that correct. <laughs> to him who judges justly. And I think there's something really important for us here. Salvation from sin is not deliverance from every problem, every pain, or every obstacle to our happiness in this life, but rather it's salvation from self-centeredness, a curving in on oneself, to a new orientation of God-centeredness. That's what salvation is. I'll never forget, uh, when I was a brand new believer, I, there was a girl who was just going through it, a fellow, I'm a waiter, she was a waitress at the time, I was a waiter, and she, uh, I just said, man, have you tried Jesus? Because <laughs> we were just passing in the hall. And she said, I tried that, it didn't work. And it stuck with me to this, to this day. What do you mean it didn't work? Hey, I know you didn't try Jesus, because <laughs> he always works. But obviously what she meant by that is, he didn't do what she thought he should do whatever it is that she desired in her life. But when we take a look at chapter 2 of 1 Peter, of course the whole Bible, but we're going to stick with 1 Peter 2, we see a clear pattern emerge here when you want to see what is the purpose? Why did Jesus die for us? Why did he redeem us? Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, that we might declare his praises. Verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That should be our concern. We want to see even our enemies turn. Why? Oh, so our suffering will be relieved? Well, hey, that's a nice uh, side of, uh, uh, thing, benefit. But that's not the main reason. It's so that they would glor bring glory to God. That's what they were made for. They might realize that, that God might get the glory. See, it's all about glorifying God. It's all about bringing Him praise. It's all about getting condom, uh, not con commendation, <laughs> not condemnation, but commendation from Him for bearing up under unjust suffering in fulfillment of your calling. This is what you're called to. You were called to, Peter says, as a real, bona fide, true blue believer in Christ. 
Now, I'm going to end my very last point and very brief. Where I began uh, this morning, instead of a one, two, three in order, I'm doing one and now two, and then the third one is back to the beginning, and it's simply this. And this one you don't want to fall asleep on. You want to take these last extra moment, uh, last few moments and listen. The gospel is where we find the power to live for righteousness, to live for God. Tim Keller puts it this way. Religious people find God useful. Growing Christians find God beautiful. There's a universal difference between those two. See, for the religious person, God is there to just satisfy their every need, like the genie in the bottle. And if he's not helpful, then they're done with it. What have you done for me lately? Would be their mantra. But growing Christians, those who have returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls by the grace of God, they find God not, not useful, but beautiful. The only way that you're going to find God beautiful is if you continue to gaze upon, drink in, and believe the gospel. Because in the gospel of God, we see the beauty of God. We see Jesus lifted up. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Why? Two reasons, brothers and sisters. One, for his father's glory, because he loved his father more than life. That's not shocking. But you know what is? The other reason. Because he loved you and me better than life. Blue is the color of a heart so cold that will not bend when the story is told of the love of God for a sinful race, of the blood that flowed down Jesus' face. How beautiful is Jesus, huh? His glory, his beauty, his goodness, his majesty was on full display when he suffered for righteousness' sake. Instead of kicking against the goads and crying out, that's not fair to me. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And you know what Peter, Peter says? He did this, yes, obviously for our atonement. But he also did this to leave an example for us. So you see, it's not an either or. Now Jesus isn't merely an example. But, uh, because if he was just an example, and, that, and it was on that basis that we try to get right with God by copying what Jesus did, we'd, we'd be lost forever because we could never do it perfectly. So we needed a Savior, not just an example. But once you have come to know him as Savior, then he is also your example. That's what Peter's saying. Beautiful, isn't he? Jesus, our Lord. How do we grow in the Christian life? We allow the gospel to enlarge our hearts more and more, deepen our gratitude, our understanding more deeply what Jesus did for us on the tree. Peter's favorite way of referring to the cross, apparently. Remembering that we died with him there. So that, listen, so that living for righteousness would be less of a duty that we resent and that we shrink from 
and be more of a delight and a joy to walk in. How sweet even our trials will become to us, or in them, I should say, not because of them, because we know that we have been forgiven and that in Christ, uh, our wounds have been healed by his stripes. We don't ever have to, we don't have to look for satisfaction anywhere else. We know that we have the living water in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the cross. We thank you most of all for him who died on it, gave his life up willingly for us. The one who entrusted himself to you, the one who judges justly. We know you are a just judge and we know ultimately justice will prevail. And in our case, we're thankful that you were merciful. And we do pray, Father, for those who are making our lives difficult in this world. We pray for their salvation. Father, we pray for each other that we would uh, bear up under unjust suffering uh, by faith, with joy, entrusting ourselves to you, knowing that uh, you have our best uh, interests in mind at heart. And Lord, we pray that we could live this way so that others would come to glorify you on the day you come to visit us to finish what you started when you come back again, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.